Welcome everyone to Working for the Word. I'm Andrew, and this is where we take a close look at what goes on in the background of a translation project. And we are here today with a very special guest, somebody who's very dear to me, and somebody who hopefully will become very influential in your life because I've recommended some of his resources before in this podcast, and his name is Dr. Peter Gentry. He is a professor at the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary. He taught me pretty much everything important that I have shared on here. Probably I I owe it to him. So this is a guest that I am definitely not qualified to have on this podcast, but I'm very thankful because he's a dear friend and he's been very patient and gracious with me over the years to teach me a lot. And I uh, took every, th- every single class that he offered at Southern Seminary, just learned so much life-changing, impacting things from him. So welcome, Dr. Gentry. Thank you very kindly. Yeah. And just to tell you a little more about, about his background, he is originally from Canada, and he did his PhD at the University of Toronto. He has a lot of interests And I'll let him tell you a little bit more about himself now. Uh, Yes. Well, my parents were missionaries, so I spent the first Mm -hmm. six years of my life in the Philippine Islands. And then we uh, returned to Canada. I grew up in southern Quebec and also finished high school out west in Edmonton, Alberta. Then I came to study at the University of Toronto. After a bachelor's degree, I went to Dallas Theological Seminary for a couple of years, and then I returned to study, to do a master's degree in ancient Near Eastern studies and specialize in Septuagint. I I was married in 1979, and we went out into a pastoral ministry, and then after two or three years, we returned to Toronto, and I I did a PhD in uh, the Department of Near Eastern Studies. Uh, under uh, John William Weavers and Albert Petersman and John Rebel. Mm-hmm. And you've written some books. Tell us about your books. Well, some of the books that I've written, I had no intention of writing. Mm-hmm. Uh, so uh, I've co-authored a book with Stephen J. Wellam called uh, Kingdom Through Covenant. It's a book that helps people put the storyline of Scripture together and see the larger picture of how the Bible is put together. There's This is a big book. It's about, I think the second edition is about a thousand pages. So we have a 275 page abridgment called God's Kingdom Through God's Covenants. I've also written a little popular book called How to Read and Understand the Biblical Prophets, as well as, uh, and then, I've, then I have some, some technical writings. Great. Now, um... Have you have you found that people are more interested in the the prophets book than the other one? Well, there's a lot of uh, a lot of people have uh, said that they found the book on the prophets very helpful. That's I wonderful. Think, I think uh, the kind of culture that I was raised in, it really doesn't matter whether you were raised in a in a sort of the modernist period or the postmodernist period. Neither of these cultures has been very helpful in helping people understand how Hebrew literature works, right. how, how, how the Hebrew prophets uh, communicate. And so I try, to, uh, I try to describe how, 
what their method of communication is and how we can best uh, understand these texts. Mm -hmm. And I will say that if you haven't read these books by Dr. Gentry, you live an impoverished life. So go, go ahead and get them and uh, come back to me and thank me later. You've also done some videos on YouTube that have been quite helpful and popular as well. I, I looked at those the other day called Honest Answers. It's a series by Southern Seminary called Honest Answers. You can check out, you've done three videos now, right? Four, four videos. Four videos. Uh, okay. Yeah, there's Great. one on there's one on the sons of God. There's one on Melchizedek. There's one on polygamy, and there's one on Isaiah 14 and uh, Ezekiel 28, and whether or not those passages have anything to do with the fall of Satan. Right. These are all pretty hot topics that I recommend you go check out if you haven't studied much on those, or even if you have studied a lot, you'll probably glean some really good insights there. Uh, the one on the Nephilim. The Genesis 6 mysterious passage almost broke the internet. It has so many comments and views. It's like a half a million views. So check it out. We are here to talk about the divine name. As you guys have been following, I've done four pod, previous podcasts on this. It's a very broad topic, and I'm glad we can get an expert in here that knows at least 300,000 times more than I do about this subject and who can help guide us a little more on some of the nuts and bolts behind this discussion. So I guess let's start out with just some personal questions, Dr. Gentry. Okay. When did you first encounter the name Yahweh growing up or, or later in life? Well, probably in the 1970s. Hmm. Uh, if, if we could put that in perspective, so I, I became a Christian at the age of six years old, around 1960. Mm -hmm. I was raised in a Christian home. In our home and in the churches that I was involved with, they were dominated by the King James Version. Right. During the 1960s and the early part of the 1970s, I was familiar with the name Jehovah. Mm. Uh, I don't know. Uh, so I, I don't know whether you've explained to your your audience that the in the in the he, in the Hebrew Bible when the Hebrew Bible was originally written only the consonants were written right it wasn't until 600 to 900 AD that the uh, reading tradition was written down the vowels that go with the consonants were were written down so what happened is that um, the divine name, the four letters, Y-H-W-H, J-H-V-H would be based mm -hmm. on German, mm -hmm. a, a German system of transliteration. Y-H-W-H right. would be more of an English system of transliteration. We have in the Bible what is called Kathiv Karei. So Kathiv means what is written in the consonantal text. And kare means what is read in the synagogue. So for some words, what they were reading in the synagogue was not what was written in the text. Right. We're pretty sure that some, somewhere between the end of the Old Testament and the beginning of the New Testament, the Jewish people considered the divine name too holy to pronounce or too 
sacred to pronounce. And so when they when they read the text in the synagogue, they instead of pronouncing the divine name, they used the word Lord. Right. And so when the Bible was translated, when the King James Version was translated, the translators didn't realize that the vowels didn't the vowels that for the divine name, the vowels, the consonants were the divine name and the vowels were the word for Lord. Right. So they, in, they inserted those vowels into the consonants and came up with the word Jehovah, which is a word that never existed in Hebrew. Yeah. Now, wasn't uh, Tyndale guilty of that as well? Yes. Well, the, the people yeah. who... The people who trans the, the people who made the King James translation borrowed heavily from earlier exactly. English translations. So yeah, yeah. William it's Tyndale, all Tyndale. Yeah. Coverdale and uh, the Geneva Bible, uh, the other the other earlier translations were were very important and influential. Right. Yeah. Okay. I probably so I probably came across the divine name in my studies at the university or in my studies in the seminary mm. uh, around 1975 or okay gotcha it also the whole business of the divine name actually affects a lot of things so for example if you have cases of the divine name mm -hmm. at the word yahweh or let's say jehovah in the king james version they they're reading that lord so then suppose you have a double name, a double name like Yah, like the Lord Yahweh. Mm -hmm. Well, then you're going to say Adonai, Adonai, right? And that won't. Uh, and so what they would do in those cases is they would say Adonai Elohim. So mm -hmm. they would, so they would actually read. They would read Elohim, the word for God, instead of Yahweh. Right. Right. And that's also evidenced in the way they put the vowels, the Masoretes put the vowels in the text later on, yes, right? That's right. The vowels and and when you're reading the Hebrew text, you can see immediately that the vowels, that the the little dots and dashes and squiggles that represent the vowels don't match the consonants. So it's very obvious. Our reading tradition is diverging from the, the tradition of writing the text. Right. I think what a lot of people may not know is that when you find the divine name written in the Masoretic text, there are many different spellings. Uh, it, is, it is not consistent at all. The divine name actually has many different forms. So we can talk about the pronunciation later on, but let us say that the, that the full name is Yahweh. Well, there are, there are short forms of the name. Mm -hmm that you come across in expressions like hallelujah. So the yah is short for Yahweh. Yeah. Uh, sometimes the short form occurs by itself. Uh, it also occurs, there are many names in the Hebrew Bible that have the divine name as part of it. Like, right. uh, like the name Joshua in Hebrew is uh, Yehoshua. So the, the Yeho is a short form of the divine name. Or it could be, it could be, uh, Yeho could be contracted to Yo, or it could just be contracted to Yeh. There are names that have the divine name as the last part, 
like Adonai Jah. So that Yah is a uh, is the divine name. Right. And uh, you might you might have uh, like let's say the name of Jeremiah. It might be Jeremiah or Yirmiyahu. Mm-hmm. So Yah or Yahu. So there we've just given like six or seven different forms of the divine name. Right. Right. So how do scholars sort out these theophoric name hints at the pronunciation? So they're kind of like echoes or or hints of the original pronunciation of the name. Or would they say that? Would they say that the, these are helping them piece yes, together well, the, the original? Yes. So um, uh, first of all, we look at the, for- the different forms that we see. And and you can uh, you can understand certain certain forms as contractions of the longer form uh, or shortening of the longer form. When scholars uh, discuss this, uh, first of all, uh, they try one of the things they try to do is they try to see well does this name occur? First of all, the name is the name is not only found in the Bible. It's found outside the Bible. Okay. So we have something called the Moabite stone, which is uh, an inscription from Moab from the 9th century BC. Mm. And there, the divine name, the name of the God of Israel is spelled Y-H-W-H exactly as you find it in the Hebrew Bible, mm. which is kind of interesting because... yeah. The Masoretic text is from 1080, and here we have exactly the same spelling from almost 1000 BC. Wow. And uh, there's also an 8th century seal, and we have pieces of pottery from Tel Arad from the 7th century. We have letters, the, the so-called Lachish letters from the 6th century BC, mm-hmm. and we have pre-exilic graffiti. And uh, so the name Yahweh is found in in all of these places. But then what scholars do is they try to say, well, does this name occur out in other countries outside of the Bible? Mm. Like, is is this is this a divine name found in ancient Egyptian religion or ancient ancient Mesopotamian religion or, or or ancient Canaanite religion? And uh, there have been many ingenious there has been a lot of research, but uh, the bottom line is the name Yahweh is not found as a divine name in any other country of the ancient Near East. Okay. So then the next step is to ask ourselves, where does this name come from and mm-hmm. what does it mean? Mm-hmm. There are two approaches. One approach is to analyze it just in terms of the Hebrew language itself. Yeah, and then and then another approach is to see, are there any important texts in the Bible which describe the meaning of the divine name? Okay. And and so first of all, if we analyze the name Yahweh from the vantage point of the Hebrew language, it's it comes from the verb to be. Yeah, scholars have discussed a number of different possibilities, but the best. The best analysis is to say that it comes from the verb to be. Mm-hmm. And then there are two possibilities. The simple stem, the cal stem would be he will be or he is. Mm-hmm. There's the, what we call the hyphial or causative stem, he will cause to be. 
Okay. And if you look at this point, it would be most helpful to look at a text of the Bible. And the most important text is Exodus chapter 3, where God is revealing his name to Moses. And he specifically connects it to the verb to be. Mm-hmm. And, he can, and it's the simple form. It's the calstem. It's the simple form of the verb. So it means, according to Exodus chapter 3, and I think, I think as Christians, we have to take this as, as, uh, as authoritative, that it means in the communication that God has with Moses, it's given in the first person singular. I am who I am, or I will be who I will be. And then it's converted to a third person form. He, he is, or he will be. Right. This is confirmed, by the way, by the Septuagint, which is the oldest translation of the Hebrew Bible, the mm-hmm. Old Testament. It was translated from Hebrew into Greek in the third century BC, and it uses the verb to be to translate the divine name. Okay. And then uh, the other question would be well, since the Masoretic text has the consonants for Yahweh, but the vowels for Lord, then the, the question is, what were the original vowels? Mm-hmm. Since our, our current Hebrew text does not give us the original vowels, what were the original vowels? If it comes from the verb to be, then the first vowel would be A, and the second vowel would be E. And when you learn Hebrew, and you learn to conjugate the, the, the present or future tense, the first mm-hmm. vowel is usually I, but we know that this, this I vowel comes from an original A vowel. Okay. Uh, so, for example, if you may remember this, Andrew, uh, when we talk about the Canaanite ancestor, for example, of, of the prefix form of the verb, it's yaktul with an A. Right. And you, and you can see the irregular verbs in the geminate verbs and the hollow verbs all have that original A. Mm-hmm. So it's very easy to prove that the first vowel was originally A, the second vowel would be E. And then uh, something that's very important is that uh, a church father by the name of Origen created a Bible in the third century AD, and he, he had the uh, pronunciation transliterated into Greek. Right. And uh, the the transliteration is Yota, Alpha, Beta, Epsilon. So that would give us the trend. That would tell us that the trend, that it was pronounced Yahweh. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Which in Greek would actually be Yabe, right? But um, there's a there's an issue there with the Vav, right? For the, for well, those who don't know Hebrew, yes, um, the uh, different pronunciations the, of that letter. In the second letter of the alphabet in classical Greek is a beta, but we know that it was pronounced like a V mm-hmm. by the by the third century AD. Okay. Very interesting. So to summarize, maybe for someone who's not as familiar with Hebrew and such, you're saying that if we look at the the way Hebrew changed over the years, the most ancient or primitive form of Hebrew that would have been back in the Exodus time would have conjugated that verb to be using an A vowel at the beginning. Yes. But the, the Hebrew that we see in the Hebrew Bible normally wouldn't actually do that because that's a later Hebrew. Is that what you're saying? 
Yeah, the form of the verb, the first vowel, we call it the prefix vowel, was originally A, and that later later on became an I. Exactly. And you can see the these irregular verbs that we call geminate and hall in geminate and hollow roots, a certain kind of irregular verb preserves the original vowel, uh, prefix vowel. Exactly. Maybe maybe it would be helpful for people to realize that the name has a W in it, Yahweh, and that uh, because of the German influence, the Germans pronounce their we's like W's. So, mm-hmm. uh, so because of the German influence on Hebrew, the W is pronounced as a V, and this is why you have the King James uh, giving us Jehovah. Right. Okay. That's really helpful. Thank you. So we were just talking about the Septuagint. Can you share about what you think the, the Septuagint's motivation was to translate the divine name as the Lord in their translation? And maybe anything else that you would like to comment about the Septuagint's treatment of that? Yes. Um, so in the, in the Septuagint, uh, the Greek translation of the Hebrew Bible, the Greek translation of the Old Testament, they translated the divine name with the word kurios, which means Lord. So that means from the standpoint of the translation, you can no longer tell whether it comes from Yahweh or it comes from Adonai, the Hebrew word for Lord. Mm -hmm. Many Christians may know that in our English Bibles today, they use Lord with with the small caps to tell you when it's representing Yahweh and Lord without small caps when it just represents master or Lord. Yeah. But but the readers, the first readers of the Septuagint would have no way of knowing when Curios represented Yahweh and when it represented Lord. Now in some of our oldest Hebrew manuscripts, they actually have the divine the the name uh, Yao, mm-hmm. which which could be could be spelled with Hebrew letters in a Greek translation, or could be spelled with Greek letters in a mm-hmm. Greek translation. Mm-hmm. Uh, and there's a debate or a dispute over this. I think the best analysis, as far as I can understand, is that. The original translation of the Septuagint had Kyrios, it had Lord, mm-hmm. and that during the intertestamental period, Jewish people became superstitious about pronouncing the divine name, and so they used the word they used the word Lord mm-hmm. when they were reading it in the synagogue. And I think in some cases they actually wrote the divine name. They changed the original Greek translation back to Yao. I see. So that would be my understanding of the situation, that perhaps to make clear the difference between curios representing the divine name and curios representing the word for master or lord, or perhaps due to their superstitious reverence for the divine name, mm-hmm. they changed the original Septuagint from curios back to yao. Uh-huh. So... There are also Septuagint manuscripts where the everything is in Greek, but then the divine name appears in Hebrew yes. with just the four letters in Hebrew. You also think that was a kind of a retroactive conservatism? 
Well, some of that might be, some of it is due to Origen's hexapla. So Origen was a church father who died around 253. He created a six-column Bible. The first column had the Hebrew text in Hebrew letters. The second column had the Hebrew text in Greek transliteration, which would help him to pronounce the text mm-hmm. and provide the reading tradition for him. In the fifth column, he put the Septuagint, the original or first translation into Greek. And then in columns three, four, and six, he put Jewish revisions of the Greek trans of the original Greek translation by Aquila, Symmachus, and Theodosian. So by the third century BC, we not only had the original Greek translation, but there were revisions of the translation, just like you have you have the King James Version, and then you have the Revised Standard Version, and then you have yep. the New Revised Standard Version. So right. <laughs> they were making they were making revisions of the original Greek translation. Yeah. And some of our Greek manuscripts have may have the divine name in it in Hebrew letters due to this tendency that we see in inter- in, in uh, Second Temple Judaism to, uh, to have an over-reverence over for the divine name or to make clear that it's the divine name or it could come from the transmission of Origen's hexapla. I see. And you did your dissertation on one of those revisers uh, yes. on on Job, right? Theodosian yeah, and right. Job. That's right. By the way, it's important for people to realize that we have a lot of uh, over the last two hundred years, archaeology has brought to light an incredible amount of information from the ancient Near East, mm-hmm. and we have learned a lot about the religions of ancient Egypt the religions of ancient of Mesopotamia, the religions of, of Canaan, of, of ancient Syria, of ancient uh, Turkey, for example. And in all of these countries, none of the names for their gods are personal names. They're all descriptive titles. So mm. the, the country of Israel, the people of Israel are the only people in the ancient Near East who actually know the personal name for their god. Mm. So, for example, if we just take an illustration, the word God, G-O-D, is what we would call a generic noun. It distinguishes one class of being from another. So, for example, yeah. he's, I'm a human and he's God or table. That's a class of noun. Uh-huh. Uh, Lord is a descriptive title that someone might call me professor. They might call me teacher, they might call me doctor, which is the Latin word for teacher. Some people call me father, some people call me husband. Those are descriptive titles that indicate your relationship to the other person. And then, of course, my personal name is Peter. Yeah. So God is a generic noun. Lord is a descriptive title. Yahweh is a personal name. Israel is the only people in the ancient Near East who actually knew the personal name of their God. Yeah. The oldest Hebrew writing that we have is in what's called the Phoenician style script. Mm-hmm. The, li- the later Hebrew writing is in the Aramaic style script. We know that they changed from the older Phoenician style script to the Aramaic style script somewhere around the 5th or 4th century BC. Mm. But there are manuscripts in the Dead Sea Scrolls that are written in the later script that still 
use the older script for the divine name. Yeah, yeah. And that's the same kind of extreme, it's an extreme form of reverence. Uh, they're unwilling to let the old the old form go mm -hmm. and, and update it and modernize it. Uh, and that's the same sort of thing that we see in, 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 the, in the manuscript as we're talking about in the way they pronounce things in worship in the synagogue. Exactly. Yeah. So by the time the Dead Sea Scrolls were written, this tradition, would you say it was already in full force yes, of not so. pronouncing the name? Yes, I think so. Okay. And I, we have to say very clearly to Christians today, this is a false approach. Because mm -hmm. when, when you look at the Psalms, yeah. the, the book of Psalms is, now I had a professor who said the, the book of Psalms is not the word of God. It's not God speaking to men. It's men speaking to God. But, but, but it, is the <laughs> word of, it, is, it is the word of God. God is telling men how he wants them to speak to him. Yeah. And when we see the prayers of David, David is not afraid to pronounce the name of Yahweh and use the name of Yahweh in his prayers. Mm -hmm. So there's nothing wrong or sinful in using it. And it obviously we have to show reverence for the name and respect for the name, but that doesn't mean that we should stop using it or or not say it. Yeah. So let me ask you a kind of a provocative question. Would you say our, our continued, let's, let's just take the issue of translation, our, our continual submission to tradition in this re respect and refusal to translate the divine name as Yahweh or, or as a name inst instead of a title, would you say that is probably offensive to God? I don't so know. It's a provocative it, question. I know. <laughs> no, I, I don't think I don't think we could say it's offensive. Okay. Because, because if you look at the New Testament, the apostles, the, the the New Testament comes from Jesus and the apostles. Yeah. When the apostles are writing the New Testament, they're using the word "curios," mm -hmm. and they're using it not they're using it both for the divine name and for the descriptive title "Lord." Right. Certainly, they didn't offend God, so yeah. uh, it it's not a it's not a it's not a it's not an offense to God. Uh, but I think the important issue there is that God has a huge desire to communicate, mm -hmm. and so um, the apostles are putting are putting things into a cultural form in their world that people will understand. Yeah. They're trying to communicate, they're trying to communicate in their culture. And I mm -hmm. think uh, you're much more of an expert at uh, Bible translation than I am, but I would, I think that's one of the, the tr one of the key things that we're trying to do in Bible translation in which we're trying to communicate. Sure. Uh, and, and I, I don't think it should be a big problem for English speakers to realize that there's a difference between the personal name of God and a, and a descriptive title like Lord. And the Hebrew Bible clearly distinguishes this, mm -hmm. uh, even though it's not so clear in the New Testament. Right. And that brings us to the big question mark for me that continues to bother me. 
is the the issue of the New Testament and why it chose to do that. I do understand what you just said about wanting to communicate. I, I wonder, do you think it was more trying to communicate or trying not to be offensive? Well, first of all, they were not originators in this. Yeah. Because, because they were using the Septuagint. Right. So the decision was already made by the translators of the of the Septuagint. Mm-hmm. People in the, the the Jewish people in the third century who chose to translate the Bible from Hebrew into Greek used the word for Lord. So so that was that was pretty standard yeah. by the time of Jesus and the apostles. So I don't think I don't think they were originators. And they they didn't try to change a tradition that was already there. Mm-hmm. What are Christians supposed to do as they juggle these two personal names for God? Well, uh, Jesus and Yahweh. And, it, you know, in our prayers, even as Christians, this is a, another thing. Should we also imitate David and, and pray to Yahweh? Is it important for us to call upon his name in our prayers? Okay, there's two different questions there, which I think I would I would like to address. Sure. First of first of all, let's briefly discuss the doctrine of the Trinity. Yeah. So the Trinity, in in as I've been able to read and study the scriptures, and and we're talking here about I I'm talking about the old the old and the New Testament as Christian scripture, mm-hmm. the Christian Bible. It's not just the New Testament, but the Old Testament is part of it. And the Old Testament isn't just a Jewish document. I, I consider the Old Testament the first part of Christian scripture. So if we look at if we look at the whole Christian Bible, the doctrine of the Trinity, we can argue that it was hinted at in the Old Testament, but it's not clearly revealed in the Old Testament. It's mm-hmm. clearly revealed in the New Testament. And what that means for our theology is that. Uh, and we can actually see we can actually see this in the interpretation of the apostles. So when the apostles discuss various passages in the Old Testament, the Yahweh of the Old Testament could be Yahweh the Father, it could be Yahweh the Son, or it could be Yahweh the Holy Spirit. I see. I remember, for example, this is discussed by S. Lewis Johnson in his little book on the use of the Old Testament in the New. So okay. I think. He's discussing there a particular passage where the apostle or New Testament writer, I forget exactly which passage this is, is trying to interpret a text in the Old Testament. Mm -hmm. I think it's a statement about Yahweh appearing in glory. And since the apostle understands the Son to be incarnate, he interprets the Yahweh in that particular case to be Yahweh the Son and not Yahweh the Father. So mm. I think so I think that from a New Testament perspective, Yahweh could be the Father, the Son of the Holy Spirit, because it's there there's only one it there's one God, and this one God can can be um within the being of the one God, we can discuss discern Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So there's a second question. The second question is how should we pray? Yeah. When I look at the New Testament, all almost all prayer in the New Testament is addressed to the Father in the name of the Son and through the Holy Spirit. Now, mm-hmm. 
As you well know, as a student of the Bible, there are some very rare cases where Jesus is addressed directly in prayer right. and where the Holy Spirit is addressed directly. Mm-hmm. And, and obviously these passages demonstrate that Jesus is God and the Holy Spirit is also God. Mm-hmm. But almost all prayer in the New Testament is addre- directly addressed to the Father in the name of the Son. Mm-hmm. So that's how I would pray, simply because that's the pattern of apostolic prayer. I see. That makes sense. I don't know if that if, if that sort of... So I, I think what we should try to do in mm-hmm. the church is we should try to imitate the patterns that we see coming from Jesus and the apostles. Yeah, that's helpful. That's helpful. And... I guess that that brings me to as well um, in our singing, in our liturgy, in our public reading of Scripture. What would you prefer to see as far as the use of the name Yahweh? If well, if you had your ideal church set up for that, what what would it be like? Christian churches are frequently dominated by fads or fashions. Yeah. As an example, in the 1980s, the music was influenced by a fad or fashion called scripture and song. Mm-hmm. And so uh, I actually have two, two, song, two hymn books or two song books in my library uh, that come from the 1980s. And all they are is scripture verses put to music. Hmm. So I think you know... Uh, one of the songs that I liked very much was Psalm 89. I will celebrate. I remember that. <laughs> yeah, I, I will celebrate your love forever, Yahweh. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the person who who uh, wrote that song was simply putting scripture scripture to music, and they were taking it in its Old Testament context. Yeah, which is completely legitimate. The Old Testament, in my view, is just as much Christian scripture as the New Testament. So there would be a very, in my view, a very beautiful and legitimate way of singing to singing to Yah to God and addressing Him as Yahweh. Okay. Well, before you go, is there anything you would like to recommend? Good resources, some of your favorite resources that have been invaluable for you in your own studies and life. There's a very small book by Richard Bauckham called God Crucified. It's hmm. a very a very powerful little book. Okay. Uh, the number of books that are extremely powerful in my life are very few, hmm. and uh, that's a that's definitely a, a, a powerful uh, little exposition. The original publication came out many years ago. It's less than a hundred pages. But, oh, okay. So it, the original publication that I'm talking about couldn't be more than $20. Oh, okay. Oh, the Kindle version is $18. Okay, good. Great. Thank you so much for that. Well, I'm glad I could help you out. And... We want to really express our appreciation for you being on the, the podcast. And I'm sure everybody will be very edified from what you had to share. So thank you. All right. God bless you.